what's my responsibility to learn and grow and to develop new capabilities in the workplace? You could argue that in the past, learning and development organizations ran programs to say, these are the things that we want you to learn because the corporate strategy is to move in this direction. And we believe that these kinds of capabilities will be important for us. And we run programs and we make learning accessible to you in ways that we believe are important. And we even schedule when you can do those and how you do those. So in a digital world, do we say that's the individual's responsibility now to work out how they become important employees, how they maintain their value to the organization. And if they don't do that right, we get rid of them. Mm. Or do we say, actually, the responsibility is now shared between employer and employee? Hello, and welcome to another episode of Learning Rewired, where leaders are challenged to rethink what, how, and why they and their organizations learn. Learning Rewired is proudly presented by Headspring custom executive development specialists as part of Headspring's commitment to fostering cultures of continuous learning. I am your host, Bevan Rees. With me in the studio today is Alan Brown, Professor of Digital Economy at the University of Exeter Business School and author of Delivering Digital Transformation, a manager's guide to the digital revolution. Alan, welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to see you again. Thank you, and you too. Uh, we've seen each other a few times recently. You've been working quite closely with Headspring in our HR Talks series. That's right. So I've had the opportunity to meet with quite a large selection of HR leaders, L&D leaders, to talk about digital transformation and its impact on their role. So really looking forward to exploring some of that today. And perhaps as a starting point, Alan, one of the, the key words that stands out for me in the title to your new book is the word revolution, a manager's guide to the digital revolution. Is it really a revolution that we're talking about here? I think that's a good place to start because I think there's a lot of controversy, certainly differences of opinion around where we are in the use of digital technologies and its impact. And I think for many people, they're looking at this as the next increment. We've always had change. Here's another change. But I'm making an argument that this is a revolution. And I'm going to try to define that or characterize the revolution as we're doing some things now that I think indicate that if we look backwards at what's happened before, it isn't going to be a great predictor of what's going to happen in the future. Mm. We're in the middle of some changes that will mean that the way we looked at the world, the way we valued the world, in fact, our values in the way that we think about what we do, why we do it, and how it sort of influences everything around us are changing. And to me, that's the sign of a revolution. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to take that position in my conversations with you. And that's what I'm trying to do with organizations is to get them to think that way, which means they'll not try to rely on things they've done before as ways of addressing the challenge they face, but actually we'll start to look at some new ways of thinking, some new opportunities of trying to solve problems in new ways. And I think that influences a lot of what they do. Yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense. There's obviously a far more radical perspective in the word revolution than a kind of a digital evolution. Mm. And am I hearing that this is for you to a large degree almost like a call to arms for organizations to really step into this in a far more significant and applied way? Yes, it is. Before? Because I think what happens in many organizations, if I can characterize it this way, is there's a little bit of just turning the handle. Mm. We've gone through changes before, whether it's business re-engineering, whether it's the lean revolution of trying to remove bottlenecks and improve flow, whether it's um, 
capability maturity models of uh, trying to do things that are more well-defined and routine and to do them in a more effective and efficient way. I would like to argue that this isn't just the next click on that path. This is something that's going to change the way you look at what you do, why you do it, who you do it for, who you want around you to succeed in doing it. So I'm going to try to argue that because I think it will take us into a different place, a different headspace. Mm -hmm. So that sounds appropriate to any form of significant transformation. What is it specifically about this digital transformation that makes this unique? I think that's really good because if we add this other word of digital and revolution, then we get into some interesting places. Mm -hmm. And I think there are a couple of things for me that are pushing us. Obviously, a lot of what's been written by Friedman and Nicholas Carr and those sorts of guys have talked about the confluence of new digital technologies mm -hmm. in our workplace, in our home. And they've talked about the speed, the performance, the elasticity of, of some of the technologies that we're applying in, in the work that we're doing. And that is one element, I think, that's really important. There has been a, a massive acceleration, if you like, of the capability of these technologies over the last few years. And a revolution in some ways that are a little bit different. So if I can, if we go back to the 1950s and 60s, there was a revolution that happened around computation. The idea of a computer was that we could do relatively simple computations quickly, robustly, and we started to open that up to people that didn't have the opportunity to do that before. So human tasks were recast as a series of automated computations, whether that was logbooks or whether that was calculations of finance or ordering, those sorts of areas. We started to get into this computational revolution. And the price of computation went through the floor. Mm. Therefore, we could recast human activities as thousands, often millions of computations run quickly and robustly. Mm -hmm. I would argue, and other authors have argued, that what's happened in the last few years is the price of prediction has gone through the floor. Mm. We've moved from computation to algorithms and artificial intelligence that allow us to think about human problems and computational problems as predictive problems. So let, let's take a simple example. You're driving a car. What used to happen, of course, it was mechanical. I pressed my foot on the brake. That compressed some fluid. That meant that we did something on the brake disc and the car would stop. The amount of pressure on the pedal meant that there was more braking force. Of course, what happened in the last 20 years is that became a sort of electromechanical issue. Mm -hmm. Computations were happening and software was running in the car that said, when I press the brake, some software will say, he's pressed the brake this hard, therefore Alan wants the car to stop and will stop in proportion with how hard he pressed the brake. Now think what's happening. When I press a brake on a car, a set of predictive algorithms run that say, he's pressed the brake, he's pressed it pretty hard. I think he wants the car to stop. So what should we do? And the computation and the prediction that's beginning to happen that beyond computation says, what's the weather like? What's the condition of the car? What's the condition of the brakes? What's the condition of the driver in terms of stress levels, alcohol levels, uh, driving ability? What's the car done before? What have other cars done on this corner, on this road today in these weather conditions? Mm -hmm. Therefore, what should we do to this car right now? Wow, that's a massive change. Something happens that intermediates between what you asked to do and some algorithms and some prediction about what should be done. Mm -hmm. And that's a really mammoth change. Mm -hmm. And if that's happening when you press the brake of a car, what happens when you want to buy a stock in the stock market? 
when you want to look at your own health and make some prediction about whether you should take a tablet now or lower your blood pressure or take a break in a difficult work situation. Imagine all the things that are possible when we start to have that ability to predict and to be able to do it robustly mm-hmm. with large amounts of data, which is what powers prediction, and with a different sort of cost model that says that this can be done cheaply, easily, and by a large community. We're in a completely different world. And that's what I mean by a revolution. We're in this revolution that's changing it from a computational approach to solving problems to a predictive algorithmic-based approach. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's huge. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's dramatic. If we, if we just stretch your metaphor even a little bit further, one of those key... Well, there are two things that stand out for me from the example you just used. One is the technology itself, and the other is the functional potential of the technology. So, as you know, if, if we take this out to the development of 5G networks, for example, which are beginning to roll out, and, you know, one of the, the most commonly spoken about potentials of 5G networks is the first-time genuine delivery of autonomous networks of vehicles, etc. And if we look at the, the metrics that we're talking about, vehicles being able to, because of 5G's incredibly low latency, being able to communicate in literally one millisecond with each other, sharing the, the data that you've just described, in literally a fraction of a second. Whereas, I mean, a human being's reflex response time on average is about 250 milliseconds. So we're talking about this data being shared and that predictive decision-making being taken automatically, literally 250 times faster than a human being. So before we even know something is going wrong, theoretically, the system is recalibrating and correcting. And if we have this network of all these cars are speaking to each other at the same time, I mean, it's almost, well, to my mind, almost uncomputable. I mean, it's almost, a, you know, I can't really gather how a network that complex with that amount of data, that speed of processing, what it opens up for us in terms of potential. So that technology is quite easy to see. I mean, it's here and it's just about the final steps coming into play and actually connecting. Well, how do you see that bridging, that gap? And, and Well, first of all, do you see this in organizations where, the technology is quite obvious. We can see the technology. It's even tangible in many ways. What that technology actually opens up for us in terms of capacity and potential is not always clear. And then also how to enact that potential is also not clear. I mean, one, one of the, the great things I love about the title of your book is it's called Delivering Digital Transformation. It's not a theoretical kind of story about digital transformation and what it might mean. It's really about a, a practical developmental initiation of digital transformation. So I might be taking a little bit of a long segue here, but how do you see that, the contrast between the technology itself and then its application? Yep. And what do we need to do to be able to really tap into the potentials that we see in this technology? Because I think for a lot of people, that's the, the frightening part is, okay, I get the technology, but, whoa, I really can't understand how this is actually going to translate into yep. something for me. I think there are several aspects. If if the kind of revolution I described is important and is effective, then you start with the technology and you start with the capability of the technology. And as we might be able to highlight, some of that depends on several things. First of all, our ability to gather data from places. Often we haven't been able to do that before, or not easily. For example, in the home, in vehicles, that's been something that's beginning to develop for a number of years. But we're now starting to connect that with what's happening in your body, for example, Mm. your physiological responses to things, your health, 
So not just the health of the engine itself, but the health of you as an individual driving that vehicle or being responsible for that vehicle. So once we get into those places, we've got new data streams that we can start to bring on board and that we can get them from sensors and sensor-based devices reliably, robustly, frequently. And we can begin to process those very quickly with new algorithms and new computing power. And we can begin to transmit them in real time and interact and integrate them from multiple sources because of the capabilities of new communication technology. Mm. And we can begin to learn from them because of the large amounts of data we have collected previously and the analysis that we've run on it so that we can begin to understand what this data might mean, what has happened previously with this kind of data. So that gives us the technological backdrop for being able to do new things. Mm. So these technological advances have been instrumental. But beyond that, we've then got to start to say, and what can we do with this? What interesting questions can mm. we ask? Mm. And how can we start to ask those and answer those questions in ways that are meaningful, helpful, uh, provide value to us, but also are responsible, are responsible in all senses of the way in which we use resources, the way in which we think about our responsibility to society, are open to different diverse views, are inclusive for different people with different kinds of knowledge about the technologies in their application. So we've got this broader backdrop that I think is the most challenging for us now. We're sort of getting to grips with the technology and its capability. Mm. We're only just beginning to get to grips with these broader questions of, and what does it mean for us as individuals, as workers in, a, in an ecosystem of businesses, as people who are in a household or in a family or part of a group? What does it mean for us as a society as a whole and our obligations to each other as fellow residents, citizens, friends, parts of the community? And I think those questions are really quite complex mm. and are stretching the boundary of value systems, of ethics, of morals, of legal systems. And that is the big thing that we see now in the press, in our lives, in the workplace that we're beginning to deal with. So I think there's lots for us to deal with in this area that is complicated, but it opens opportunities for us. Mm. You were mentioning there, you know, part of these questions are, you know, we have this massive stream of data coming towards us and that's as individuals and organizations. And that data has a lot of potential. You know, a lot of it may not be used, but a lot of it could be used much more effectively, as you say, to deliver value, to help, um, but also it needs to be done in a responsible way. So for organizations and leaders of organizations, that question of value and contribution raises the question of, well, to whom? To our customers, sure, which is, you know, the traditional economic profit model of organizations. But organizations are now being challenged to really stretch that that question of who is in their circle of responsibility to not just shareholders, but to stakeholders beyond that. And that includes customers, it includes the environment, it includes members of society, but also includes the employees within the organization. So could you kind of tease out some of the, the core issues that you see organizations facing, perhaps even around ethical issues of how to use data, and really doing the most responsible thing possible while trying to conduct a practical process of digital transformation within their organizations? Yeah. Well, it's such a broad question. If I can, I'll bring it down yeah, to please. perhaps people like the HR, L&D organizations. Perfect. Because I think they're in a very pivotal role here. And I think if we focus on, on their own transformation and what that means and the implications of that, we maybe can tease out some of the issues here. Mm. So if I take um, the classic HR function, which is essentially about people, about the heart of organizations, the people 
their skills, the contribution they make, the wellness of those people in the workplace, your ability to develop people. If we take that as the broad backdrop, I think we see three different elements to this, which I think are important. The first is that digital transformation is happening to those functions. Because of what's happening around them, this digital transformation is important as a sort of leverage of each part of the organization is experiencing this digital transformation differently. So people in a particular business unit are applying new digital technologies to drive new product behaviors, to sell more product, to understand the use of that product in a marketplace. Other parts of the organization might be trying to do new R&D activities using new technologies in order to look at how those technologies can support new kinds of offerings into the marketplace. HR and L&D tend to be right at the center of a conversation, an integration of who you hire, why you hire them, what capabilities they offer to the organization, how you develop those capabilities, how the individuals themselves are valued within that organization. And they have to do that while these different stakeholders are going through this transformation for themselves about who they are, what they're developing, who they serve. So you can talk about digital transformation happening to HR. But at the same time, digital transformation is happening in HR. As a, a supplier of services, as an organization that provides value to the organization, they also need to be efficient, to be well-managed, well to do things in a well-defined, responsible way. So digital technologies are changing what HR does, mm -hmm. how they hire, who they hire, how they manage the workload, how they look at their own people and the health of their own people inside the organization. So they're also trying to cope with the change that's happening in HR. And then finally, because of the key role of HR, they're a voice in this broader strategic change happening within organizations and within society, for which they need to have a key leadership role. Thinking about how do we think about wellness of our employees, for example, Mm -hmm. what, what have we learned over the last few years? And what do we think that might mean for the future mm -hmm. of highly stressful, very agile, dynamic workplaces when we have employees that are suffering these kinds of stressful concerns? Mm -hmm. So they need a voice in the strategy, in the conversation that's happening about future of organizations and how those organizations need to respond responsibly to the pressures that they face. Mm -hmm. So I would call this digital transformation happening through HR. So we have this in, to, and through role that I think needs to be very carefully understood. Mm. And many of the kinds of challenges I see inside organizations are when those three ideas are just confused. Mm. They're not quite sure, oh, we've been asked to tweet more. We have new desktop capabilities. We've been told to use uh, new digital reporting capabilities. And they're confused. Is this because we're transforming in our function? Is this because we're transforming as a broader organization and it's happening to us? Is this because we're trying to transform and this is happening through us? Mm. And I think if we start to separate some of those ideas, we'll help individuals and organizational units to understand what's happening, why it's happening, and what role they need to play mm. in that change. Mm. So for me, that's been quite insightful. And that's one of the things we learned by talking with this large group of HR professionals as we went and did some of these workshops mm. around, around Europe. So, I mean, I, th I think that distinction is incredibly useful. And also it makes sense to me in the sense that, as far as I understand your view of digital transformation, you know, digital transformation can happen in a siloed fashion, as it does in many organizations. And to your point that you've, you've just made, 
we sort of assume that certain functions within the organization are the functions where one would find digital transformation, R&D or product development, etc. But in fact, for digital transformation within an organization to be ultimately successful, it has to become almost a systemic process. It's got to become part of the DNA at the core of the organization. And HR and L&D are fundamental to the integration of that with the workforce. And especially where we get now to these front lines, because we, you know, individuals may be employees, but individuals are part of this internet of everything, this growing internet of everything, where their personal data and their employee data, let's call it employee data, is not very easily separated. There's a massive gray area here where those types of data overlap, and you start having these questions of ownership and the use of that data, which is a very murky territory, right? Right. And not very clearly legislated yet. And and so companies are really having to set their own policies on that. Have you seen examples of this being a dangerous ground for organizations? Yes. And, and how could the HR or L&D function help mitigate the risk there for, for businesses? Well, I think part of this digital revolution, if we keep using this kind of idea, is that it's raising some new concerns and in fact raising a few dilemmas that I think we need to be very explicit about. The first you've mentioned is that it's sometimes called the privacy personalization paradox. Mm -hmm. I want data to be used to personalize services for me, for you to understand more about me so that I don't continually have to tell you who I am, what I've done, what my history is, Mm -hmm. that you can learn from that and therefore use that data in a positive way to provide services, capabilities, products that are meaningful for me in my context. On the other hand, I don't really want you to know too much about me and to use that in ways that Mm -hmm. I haven't sanctioned. So we've got this paradox right now, which is where do people see themselves in that spectrum of support using data versus privacy by keeping data private? And the problem is individuals are in different places in their thinking around that. But secondly, people don't stay in the same place because it depends what context Mm. you're addressing that. So for example, if it's about my uh, medical circumstances. I might be in a very different situation about what I'm willing to share, how I share it, and how I'm allowing you to use it in predictive ways about my health, Mm -hmm. which might be very different than data about my work habits, data about my daily buying habits. So we've got to try to differentiate not just where they are on that spectrum, but for what purposes they see themselves in that position. Mm. And then A third dimension to it is that changes over time because Mm. it's contextual. So, for example, if something happens in the news about a massive data breach or people being scammed because their data was made accessible to people that perhaps shouldn't have had access to the data, my interpretation of that in my daily life will change today because of what I heard last night. Mm -hmm. So I might start to think about the protection of data, the value of my data, the use of my data differently because I'm... I'm affected by these kinds of contextual issues. Mm. So we're in a very complicated area where we have to think about this dilemma and how we express that in our workplace, in how we deal with our employees, in how we deal with customers and stakeholders. And this is very complicated for individuals, for organizational units, and for organizations as a whole. And that's just one of those dilemmas. You know, there are many more around how we value data versus what our values are around how we see the workplace, our position in society, how we want to contribute to some of the broader themes of society. Mm. So obvious things about what I see as using my health data to solve some of the larger issues 
around our societal challenges. How do I want that used? Who do I want to, to use it by? How do I want that to be aggregated? How do I want to participate or not participate in the use of that data? Those sorts of things are really complicated. Mm. Or even in a, I suppose, a, a more isolated context, for example, if my organization is wanting to develop a genuinely impactful wellness program, how does my data fit into the development of that? Because for what we're learning, I think, is that for these kind of programs to become genuinely effectual, we actually need better data, up-to-date data. And the best way to get that is from the employees directly. But you know, the, the employee might have a different view of that altogether. So really the efficacy of campaigns and projects within the organization can be directly affected by a potential incongruity of values between the organization and and the employee. Exactly. And and so part of this revolutionary idea is that there's been a sort of imbalance of information that is changing. So for example, it used to be companies knew a lot more about the products, what was happening to their products, how they were developed, who uses them, than the people who use the products. You could argue that that's become inverted, that you can know more about what's going on as a user of products because of the community aspect, because of the sharing of data. People are always in social media telling you about, I've just bought this, look what happens. Mm -hmm. I went to this store, it dealt with me this way. I was at this hotel, the service was poor, I ate this meal. Not what does the company want you to know about this, Mm -hmm. not what did they say about it last year. Mm. It's somebody bought this 10 minutes ago, somebody was at that store five seconds ago, Mm. somebody experienced this situation today, right now. And that kind of immediacy, interaction, community idea means that that kind of imbalance, kind of an asynchronous kind of imbalance of of information has shifted. And arguably it's shifted in ways that we don't quite understand the implications. If you look at social media and and the implications for what's happening right now in, in certain areas of information about politics, about voting, about demographics, about different communities, we see all sorts of implications for that change that we're not sure about. Governments don't know whether to regulate for it or against it. Mm. They don't know whether to step out of that kind of challenging circumstance of who's allowed to say what to whom, the regulation of what you can say and who you can say it to. All of those things are changing because of that imbalance. And to me, that's another sign of the revolution that's occurring. Absolutely. I mean, as you're speaking there, one of the things that kind of comes up for me is that you know, it's one of the principles of free market economics that the, the market will regulate. So to a certain degree, especially in this era of incredibly democratized access to information, in the way that you're describing, companies will be pulled to task or they will be required to adjust their approach and behavior mm. because of this very easy, quick sharing of information and public desire exactly. and public appetite for their services. Are companies really beholden in the same way to their own employees? And if they're not, which you know, I would suspect they're not, how do companies deal with that in a responsible way? I think this is a, a key question for HR organizations and organizations in general. And if I can back up to a sort of higher level question here is, what do we see as the relationship between employer and employee in a mm-hmm. digital world? Mm-hmm. And I think if we start from that very high level question, that kind of deeper question, I think there's a shifting balance in many ways, between what was the company's responsibility and what was the individual's responsibility in the workplace. Let me take you take a couple of examples to try to give an illustration. Let's take a very simple one. 
what's my responsibility to learn and grow and to develop new capabilities in the workplace? You could argue that in the past, learning and development organizations ran programs to say, these are the things that we want you to learn because the corporate strategy is to move in this direction. And we believe that these kinds of capabilities will be important for us. And we run programs and we make learning accessible to you in ways that we believe are important. And we even schedule when you can do those and how you do those. So in a digital world, do we say that's the individual's responsibility now to work out how they become important employees, how they maintain their value to the organization. And if they don't do that right, we get rid of them. Mm. Or do we say, actually, the responsibility is now shared between employer and employee. We make some things accessible, we guide, but we also make things open to the employee to learn in the way that they think is important to them in their role and to be given some agency over how that occurs. In which case, then who's responsible when somebody says, we don't think you're in the right position for the new role. Is that then an employer responsibility, an employee responsibility? Is it a shared responsibility? And I think many organizations are looking at these sorts of challenges because we're not quite sure what mm. that responsibility might look like. Mm. Other ways that that happens is, for example, in an educational situation where I spend most of my time in, uni in universities as an academic, there's a duty of care for the students that are part of the organization. So where does the line now sit between my responsibility to educate those students and their responsibility to be educated using the resources available? And we've seen all sorts of very interesting challenges to that. For example, we've had cases in the educational establishment where students have sued the university saying, I didn't learn effectively. I'm a good learner, so it must be your fault for not teaching me properly. Mm -hmm. Versus... Our job is to make education available. And if you don't take advantage of that, that's your fault. Mm -hmm. These balances are really interesting. And I think we're seeing that shifting set of, I would guess, boundaries between these responsibilities as another signal of the implications of the digital revolution. Mm. Really tricky stuff. <laughs> and I mean, navigating that territory successfully is going to be a marker of, I would argue, the successful organizations in the coming century. That navigation itself, though, is going to require a particular skill set, isn't it? Yes. Yes, and um, one of the things I've been at pains to try to understand and, and try to write about in the book was about what can you do about that? How do you deliver digital transformation, as you say, as opposed to just talking about it? And I tried to come down to three big areas where I think individuals and organizations can arm themselves with some more capability and understanding. So the first of those was this idea of agility. If we are going to experience lots of change and we're going to be in a period of turmoil where we can't rely on previous knowledge and understanding to predict the future, we have to be flexible. We have to have ways of learning in an experimental way. So this idea of agility becomes really important, but it comes with some positives and some negatives. So for example, lots of people like some certainty in their lives and in the workplace. And if that starts to erode, people feel very stressed. People feel very insecure. So how will we deal with the opportunity that agility provides for us to move more quickly, to apply things more quickly, and the insecurity that that brings, our ability perhaps not to look three to five years out with as much certainty in terms of plans and strategies. So there are techniques and approaches for looking at agility and trying to promote agility in a more positive way. So that's one of the areas that you need to arm yourself with. The second area is about innovation. So agility first, second is if I want to innovate and I want to start to try new things out, 
what kind of experimental approaches can I apply? And how can I learn from techniques such as design thinking, techniques such as business model canvas and, and lean kind of design approaches, which they sort of celebrate the idea that you can use new ideas quickly, you can value them, you can learn from them, and then you can iterate around that learning very quickly. And they provide very positive models for how that can work. But they also challenge orthodoxy about how products are developed in the marketplace, delivered, managed, and maintained, which is typically about selling more product more often. And they challenge that and say, what we need to be doing is increasing the outcome for all of the stakeholders, which might mean trying to find ways of making more money, increasing the value by, for example, selling less. Mm. And that is another one of those paradoxes. Mm. How do we responsibly deal with selling perhaps less product and making more value from those products mm. by understanding how they're used, by maximizing their value to different stakeholders, by helping participation and co-creation of value? Those sorts of things become really important in, in an innovative world. Mm. So organizations need to understand and learn about that. And the third, agility, innovation, and discipline management. This can't be a free-for-all. It can't be, let's throw something against the wall and see if it sticks. Mm. Organizations can't survive that way. So there needs to be a management discipline around that that allows them to do some planning, to put some measures around it, to understand the implications for them, for their workforce, and for their partners. But traditional management capabilities, approaches, may not be the ones that you want to use in this kind of dynamic, changing digital world. So what are they? What is a, an appropriate management discipline in an agile, innovative, digital transformation. And those kinds of ideas are beginning to emerge. We've seen some management disciplines that we've learned from the agile community about how you measure progress, how you look at what we might call a kind of innovation accounting, where you measure the knowledge and the application of that knowledge more than you measure the number of widgets you produce or the amount of throughput through a certain channel. So how does that work? And most importantly, how do we get there from here, mm. given all of our accounting and management and support and ability to account for our success is based on traditional ways of, of managing. So for me, those three things are, are really key. And organizations are beginning to build their capability in agility, innovation, and managed discipline. It's a, a powerful matrix. Ellen Brown, thank you. We could talk about this and we will continue this conversation over the coming months. So thank you very much for being in today. I enjoyed that. Greatly. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ellen. Thank you for listening. For more on our guests and the resources described in this podcast, please refer to the information section of your podcast player. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to receive updates and latest episodes of Learning Rewired, brought to you by Headspring.